Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. As the infrastructure of this nation developed in the late 1700s into the 1800s, the question of connectivity was a massive one. Um, For you had a burgeoning nation that was swelling from east to west. The question of connectivity between the coasts was massive. Ultimately, the answer to that question came in the form of the rail. And so the railroad ultimately connected this nation. And with the the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, there was continuity between the states, as it were, across this land. And so the railroad was a game changer. The train was a game changer for America. Thus, the train, fueled by coal and steam, would be the vehicle for rapid economic, social, and political development for our country. Now, as you consider that perhaps as an illustration, think about that in terms of Jesus' commission for his people to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Sometimes we take some of this for granted, but the reality is that it was a commission that was actually given 2,000 years ago to initially a group of 12 men there in Jerusalem. The question really then was, how? How is this group of people, and perhaps swelling to just 120 there in Acts chapter 1, that were gathered together waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, how would they advance the gospel to the ends of the earth? How's that going to happen? And how did it happen? How did it happen that here we are 2,000 years later and the gospel has been advanced? It's made its way here. And moreover, how will we, because we've been commissioned as well, how will we advance the gospel to the ends of the earth today? How will we advance the gospel to every tribe, tongue, nation, and language? Well, we learned last time in our first installment of this series that we're calling Cultivate, making our way in the big picture sense through Acts 1 through 16, we learned that the key to it would be that the people of God would be fueled by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus commanded these people to wait in the city, wait in Jerusalem until they were, as Luke records in his gospel, clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power. They were totally dependent upon the enabling power of the Holy Spirit of God. And yet, if that's the fuel, my question still remains with regard to the vehicle. If the Holy Spirit of God is the fuel for the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth, what's the vehicle? How will this happen? With that question in your mind, let's look together at Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. I'm just going to read this. As we do, consider that question. Verse 41, so those who received his word, little context, this is Peter's message that he preached, empowered by the Spirit of God there on the day of Pentecost. Those who received Peter's word as he preached the gospel were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
And they, verse 42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What do you think? My friends, if the Spirit of God is the fuel, what's the vehicle that God intends to use to advance His gospel to the ends of the earth? Now, if you're being good students of the text, you might offer, as a first guess, the apostles. Right? Multiple references here in verses 41 through 47 to the apostles. Certainly it was Peter as an apostle. It was, it was Peter's message that kicked off this whole thing. And yet, if you answer apostle, I would have to say, <clears throat> I mean, it's partially right. Okay, it's partially right. So you get partial credit for that answer, but, but it's not entirely right. For as the narrative continues, what you find is that the apostles are only part of the story. They are not the vehicle, right? They might be riding shotgun, as it were, for the first wave of this gospels advance, but they are not the vehicle. I want to suggest to you that in God's sovereign plan, he has ordained to use the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ as the vehicle whereby the gospel is advanced to the ends of the earth. This is God's plan. Now, you might, as good students of the text, you might immediately say, well, Dustin, wait a second. We, we don't even see the word church in this text. In fact, I see apostle quite a bit. I don't see church here. And I would say, right, the, the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church, isn't used actually until chapter 5 and verse 11. I want to say to you, the reality of the church, the essence of the church is all over these opening lines. And I think it's actually kind of cool. It's actually kind of cool that the word church isn't referenced until chapter 5 and verse 11. That's by the time, and you can actually peek at it if you'd like, by the time you get to chapter 5 and verse 11 and the word is used there to describe this people, it's like normal. It's not surprising. Like, of course, we've been seeing the church all along. It's being described. We know what it is. So maybe you can think about it this way. If you were to read a novel and you heard a narrator reading lines like this, for the first time in this fledgling realm, a leader would rise. A hush fell over the crowd as a brave-looking man walked down a red carpet and up the stairs into a castle and sat down on a massive chair. And as a crown was placed upon his head, a herald cried out, Behold, the king. You, you knew... Way before king was used, he was the king, right? You knew it via description before he was actually named. I think it's kind of cool. That's exactly what you see in Acts chapter 2. So I want you to see the church. I've just read this text, but I want you to see it with me, okay, as we look at these verses again. 
Know your text, verse 41. See the church described. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were, note the next word, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Question, added to what? Think about this with me. Now Luke's going to chart the progress of the church here in these opening days, and he's going to do it by number. He, he makes numerous references to this in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, added to their number. But the question is, added to the number of what? Well, he's already talking about a collective, an identifiable group, a group of people that you can know and see that have particular markings. Notice with me verse 42. And they... You're going to see multiple plural pronouns referencing this group. They devoted themselves. Who is this? Who is this they? Who is this themselves? Verse 44, and all, see this collective language? All who believed were together. They were grouped. They were belonging together. Notice verses 45 and 46. And they, this group, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You are seeing the kind of dissolving of individualism in, um, in favor of a whole, in favor of a group, a togetherness. The text goes on to say they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and they received their food Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number, that phrase again, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is cool, my friends. It's the church described. You don't even need to use the word. You know what it is. Now, it is interesting that the Greek word ekklesia was a word that was in this time used to describe a people, a group that was called out from a larger mass, a group called out and brought together with a specific purpose, a specific mission in mind. Um, every time I think about this, I always think about the fellowship of the ring, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings saga and the whole fellowship of the ring. What happened there was people were called from different ethnicities and different skill sets, right? You had Gimli, the dwarf, and Legolas, the elf, right? And Frodo and Boromir. And these guys come together all with different skills and talents from different ethnicities to form a fellowship, a collective, a community, as it were, with a mission, right? They were on a particular mission to complete. This is a good way to think about the church, individuals called out by God, called out of darkness, into his marvelous light, into a community, into a fellowship, a gathering, an assembly with a mission in view. Uh, consider what Luke goes on to record in chapter 4 and verse 32. You can flip over there or just see it on the screen. He goes on to say, now the full number, again, you can see what we're talking about here with regard to the church, the assembly, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they, this collective, this group, 
they had everything in common. My friends, this is the church. The church, the assembly of believers that have been called out from the rest of humanity into a family, into the family of God. And so the gospel is teaching us that we are united to Christ in family. This is what the church is teaching us, an understanding of the church. We are united in the gospel to Christ vertically and to a family. There is a vertical bond as well as a horizontal bond in Christ. Thus, together, my friends, together, what we're going to see as the book of Acts continues is that the church of Jesus Christ is the vehicle. It's not one person. It's not 12 people. It's not an apostle or a particular gift. It's the church of Jesus Christ a collective of God's people that he is going to use to cultivate his gospel in and then advance his gospel through. That's what we're going to see. Now, at this juncture, I think it would be helpful for us to dive a little bit more into the details because it's one thing just to say that, but the question is how. How is God going to cultivate his gospel within us and then through us to the nations? Well, I think this particular passage helps us, helps us to get specific, helps us to get into the detail. So how is this going to happen? Well, first of all, I want you to see that the gospel, and I want you to hear this for you, not just for them, hear this for you this morning, the gospel reorients your identity. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when you encounter the truth of the gospel, when you encounter a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, it reorients your identity. One of the things that you'll notice in this text is that these people immediately saw themselves differently. They saw themselves differently. No longer were they just individuals living in society, kind of doing their own thing. They saw themselves as belonging to Christ and to a family. They saw themselves that way. And my friends, this is very different. Please track with this so huge. This is very different than adding Jesus to your life as a kind of cherry on top. Or just sort of sprinkling a little Jesus on your already like tracked out, marked out life. Like adding Jesus to your resume. This is not what you're seeing in the book of Acts here. Very different. A lot of people do that in the West in particular. Because perhaps we think that Adding Jesus to our resume might help us make more money, might help us appear as more moral or charitable in society or whatever. What we're talking about in Acts chapter 2 and what I believe the gospel actually shapes in us is very different than that. It actually reorients our identity around, identity around Christ as fundamental. Our fundamental identity is in him and among his people. And you might say, well, Dustin, how, how do you see that in this text? Look at verse 41. A phrase that we tend to just slip right past is the very first one. It says this, so those who received his word were baptized. Think about this, my friends. Those who received his word were baptized. So first of all, what is baptism? Baptism is an outward, public, very public, very outward display. 
whereby it's a picture whereby a person is saying, I'm with Jesus. I am united with Christ. It's an outward expression, we often say, of an inward reality. My life has been now united to Christ, and so I want to publicly identify myself with him. Now, think about this in context of what's going on here. This is in Jerusalem and likely happening right outside the temple. Most historians believe that these baptisms occurred right there adjacent to the temple in the ritual baths. There have been unearthed by archaeologists all kinds of ritual baths that just sort of line the outside of the temple steps. I've seen them. And you literally like, like walk down the temple steps, and there they are. And so there's all these ritual baths. It's very likely that these people believed they trusted in Christ, hearing the gospel, and the apostles, perhaps maybe the 120, they're hurting these people, 3,000 people. Just think about this. 3,000 people right outside, and they go straight into the ritual waters, only this time in a very different way. This time, the apostles are taking them under the water, symbolic of Christ's death, burial, and then resurrection to walk in newness of life. And these people, please track with this, these people were saying right there in Jerusalem, I'm with Jesus. I'm uniting my life to him. Now, pause for a moment and think about this. This is less than two months, less than two months from the time in which Jesus, literally you could kind of point at it from the temple steps, Jesus was executed like right over there. Just think about it. And they are saying, in these waters, I'm uniting myself to him. I'm happy to do that. I believe, I'm convinced he died for my sin and rose again. He's alive today. I'm not threatened. I'm not threatened by the Pharisees or the Sag. I'm not threatened by that, even though this one has disrupted everything we thought was true. I'm with him. That, my friend, that is not adding Jesus as a cherry on top. That is an individual saying, he's my life. Jesus is my everything. Now, and by the way, I would say to you, you will never be more free let me encourage you in this, in this way. You will never be more free in your life than when you realize and embrace that Jesus is, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your fundamental identity. That your identity is not rooted in your performance, in your job. It's not rooted in your looks. It's not rooted in your status, whether you're married or not married, whether you have kids or don't have kids or whatever. How much money you make, your, ho- your house, your cars, whatever, your 401k, if you root or anchor your identity in all of those kinds of things, your talents, your gifts, or whatever, you're in for a roller coaster. And there, by the way, even in that roller coaster, there's issues on both peaks. There's issues there. Don't anchor your identity in those things. Anchor, if you know Jesus, you have something so much bigger. Anchor your identity in Christ. Amen? In Christ. Man, that's good so important for our lives. These guys saw themselves differently. Their identity was in Christ and Christ alone. It's evident in their baptism. It's also evident in their community. Notice with me verse 44 in your text. Again, see it for yourself. It says here, all who believed were together 
and had all things in common. So again, you're seeing the dissolving, really, of their individualistic mindset for the sake of a family. Their identity is now in Christ and in a sense of belonging. They belonged now inside a family. Again, Luke goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart, and they had everything in common. So these people were going like, these, these people, these others that have also embraced Jesus and are in him, these are my people. This is my family. I want to do life with them. I want them rubbing shoulders with me. I want to rub shoulders with them. I want to care for them. They, they saw themselves differently. Their fundamental identity in Christ, but also as belonging inside a community, inside a fellowship, inside a family. I love what one author writes when he says it this way, looking to Christ as Lord means being united to his people. It's automatic. Hear this, it's a great illustration. It's automatic, like being adopted means you'll quickly find yourself at a dinner table with brothers and sisters. Isn't this true? A lot of adoptions have taken place in this body, and I love that. It's so, so beautiful. It's important, I think. It's also a great picture of the gospel. Um, I think, I could be corrected on this, but I think little Maya was the most recent. And it's just beautiful, right? And I love the fact that she looks just a little different than the rest of the Magrus. It's awesome that way. But she's seated at, seated at the table with a lot of other siblings, <laughs> brothers and sisters, but she's 100% McGrew. Amen? I should have got more amens from this side over here. She's 100% McGrew. I was thinking, amen, let's go. I was, I was thinking, I said in the, in the first service that, I don't know if she's in the nursery right now, but if she is, she's probably got another child pinned. <laughs> Headlock. Not because she's mean, but they're a wrestling family. Okay, you just got to know that. 100% McGrew. The gospel reorients our identity. We are now fundamentally anchored in Christ and inside a family. Also, though, understand that the gospel rearranges your priorities. You see this so clearly in this text. These people were given to something new. They were given now to rhythms of grace, God's means of grace for them, whereby the gospel would be cultivated in them and amongst them. They had new appetites, to be sure, but also, I think, new convictions. And this is seen in the language of verse 42. Look at it for yourself in the text. They devoted themselves. This is the language. They devoted themselves. The word devoted means to it attend constantly to something or to persist in adherence to a thing. It actually comes from two words, one which means emotion toward and a second word which means persistence or perseverance in that motion. So the idea is that they're not going to be deterred. These people were given to this. So what were they given to? Yes, to Christ, but also to his means of grace. They were given to what? Verse 42. To the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted there. 
They wanted to hear sound doctrine. They wanted to understand who Jesus was. They wanted to understand exactly what he did in his life. They wanted to hear what was to be most valuable for them in their lives. They wanted to orient their lives underneath the authority of his word. They devoted themselves there. They also devoted themselves to the Lord's table. You see multiple references to table uh, in this text. Um, Almost every scholar would say to you that there is a reference here both to the general fellowship around food as well as to the breaking of bread in context of the Lord's Supper to remember there as they gathered, to remember the gospel, that the gospel would be central to their gatherings always. This was the Lord's plan. Don't ever move away from the central realities of the gospel. Always remember, always reflect upon the fact that I came bodily. Always reflect upon the fact that in his body, Jesus was perfect. You and I are not perfect. We need to regularly confess that. We are not perfect. This is not about us. It's about Jesus. He was perfect in every way, and he went to the cross, not because he deserved to die for any reason whatsoever, but rather because he offered himself there as a sacrifice for sin. This is what we remember when we observe the Lord's table. Amen? To keep the gospel central. So these people were devoted to this. They were also devoted to prayer. They spent time together praying, communing with God for their own souls, but also undoubtedly seeking God's grace for gospel expansion. Lord, help us. Help us to help other people know this. Help us to bring other people into this family. So they were devoted to these things and also to fellowship. They just spent time together. They wanted to be together. And so I would just say to you, my friends, we, again, unapologetically encourage you to be present, to take advantage of the gathering of God's people, whereby we can come together and put ourselves underneath the teaching of the Word of God, by the way, in a way that we're not, like, in control of, like we are on YouTube, right, or on a live stream, but to come and to put yourself underneath the teaching of the Word of God, to regularly be present at the Lord's table, to gather with brothers and sisters in small groups, in Bible studies. Take advantage, we encourage you, take advantage of uh, the blessing of the Big C Church. We've, we've been blessed in Lincoln in this way, right? There are multiple Bible studies that you could likely be a part of, uh, ministries like BSF, good things to absorb the Word of God in to be in community around. These people were together. Notice your text, by the way. With regard to fellowship, just being present, being together, notice verse 44. All who believed were what? They were together. They spent time with one another. And day by day, attending the temple together, verse 46 breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Again, chapter 4, verse 32, they were of one heart and soul. They loved each other. And so they did life together. They spent time together. By the way, you know what this prevented? What this prevented was the kind of religion we often see in society, even sadly amongst evangelicals at times, 
the kind of religion that is just about like gathering to church to have your brains fed. Absent from life. This prevented that. It wasn't just gathering to know more. We should gather to know more, right? And we should feed our brains. We should learn. We should grow in our understanding of the Word of God, who Christ is. But not divorced from life. Not divorced from life. It wasn't about coming and then going and living a different way. These people just lived together. They were together often. So there wasn't no, there wasn't any divide there. All right, so a guy couldn't come, for example, a guy couldn't come to church and act like everything is good and then go home and treat his family like trash and just get away with it for years at a time. They lived together. They knew, they knew one another, right? So they were in fellowship. They were together in community. The gospel reorients your identity. The gospel rearranges your priorities. But then thirdly, See here in this text that the gospel releases your possessions. The gospel releases your possessions. I think what we see here is very important, especially in our context here in the West, that Jesus loosens your grip on the things that seem to matter most in society. Please don't check out. And by the way, if you're nervous about what I'm going to say about these phrases in Acts chapter 2, understand I'm going to clarify, all right? But maybe a little nervousness is good because we're pretty wealthy, okay? We're pretty wealthy in this country. But understand that the gospel teaches us something different than society. Jesus loosens our grip. There are two things that we tend to have really tight grips upon, really tight fists around in our society. They are our stuff, our money, our possessions. You might even include time here, but it's our stuff and our future. Our stuff and our future. It was interesting, I did a little research this week, found that multiple outlets report that U.S. companies spent over 290 billion dollars in 2022 just on advertising. Just on advertising. 290 billion dollars. A lot of money to make you and I discontent. Right? You need more. You just need more. You need better. Right? You need better cars. You need better houses. You need better stuff. You need better hair. Whatever. You need more and better. Be discontent. So it's not surprising that the average American, the average American holds over $6,000 in credit card debt. And yet, it's interesting that simultaneously, we're also, while we are enamored with stuff, we have a very difficult time shutting down the Amazon feed, at the same time, on the other side, we're pretty fearful about and stressed to the max about our future. Is our 401k enough? Will it be enough? Will it last? 
Will social security even be there when I get there? Will it even last that long? We're stressed to the max about our future. With this sort of in the backdrop, look at this text, verse 45. Just think about these people. They were selling their possessions and belongings. By the way, pause for a moment. This was not they're selling their possessions on Jerusalem Marketplace and then going and buying new stuff. That's not what it is. Notice what it is. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Check out what Luke says in chapter 4. We've already highlighted verse 32 a couple of times. But notice verses 34 and 35. This is a powerful phrase. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Think about that. This is remarkable. Now, I told you I would be clear. I'll clarify. Uh, There is a lot in the book of Acts that needs to be teased out in two categories. What is merely descriptive? This is history. Luke is describing what happened as opposed to what is prescriptive. All right? Now, I think what we're talking about here generally is prescriptive. I think Jesus does loosen our grip on this stuff. I think he should. I think it's a challenge to all of us. How tightly are we holding on our stuff, right? We, we can't really hear the challenges from the Word of God with regard to our neighbor and our family and our friends, etc., or even about going because we're hanging on to materialism generally. I think there is a prescriptive element to this. It should challenge us in this way to loosen our grip, also to loosen our grip with regard to our future. But I would say to you, I don't think that this precisely is prescriptive. I don't think that the Bible is commanding that if we were really good Christians this morning, if we really loved Jesus a lot, we'd all just go sell our houses, go sell our cars, go sell our clothes, and bring all the money here, pool it, and live that way. I don't think that that's what the text is prescribing. But what I do think is here, my friends, I do think is here, is an example of a group of people that have been genuinely gripped with the gospel. Genuinely gripped to understand, look, the Son of God literally came here and bled out over there for me so that my sin could be forgiven? That's, that's astonishing in every way. That's astonishing. But he also didn't stay dead. He gloriously rose from the dead, and he's promised to come back. You know what that message does, my friends? It radically reorients our life around, number one, the fact that other people need to hear this message. You guys with me? Amen? Other people need to hear this message. Number two, 
I have brothers and sisters now, many of whom might have need that I could help with. And so I'm not going to live my life for these commercials. Are you kidding me? These people who think it's just about maximizing your life in the here and now, I'm not going to be fundamentally motivated that way. I'm motivated differently. I've got different loves, different desires. I have a, a different compass now. The one who came out of the tomb, the one who rose again, he's capable of taking care of me. Amen? Are you guys with me? Hear this as one of these. You're there in Jerusalem and you're hearing this message and it profoundly rearranges your life. You have a new identity. You have new priorities now. And God is shaping new loves in your heart and releasing your stranglehold on stuff that really doesn't matter. Think about that. Because of the one who came out of the tomb. By the way, you know the product of this is? good for us to pause right here. You know what the product of this is? First, I'll tell you what it's not. It is not Dustin Rogers saying, dude, you know what? I really love my clothes. I really love my clothes, but I guess I'll sell a couple shirts. <sighs> I guess I'll sell a couple shirts and maybe a pair of shoes because my buddy needs lunch. Not what it is. What is the product? What are the descriptive words here in this text with regard to their tone, their attitude? What is it? Joy. Joy. It is a magnetic joy. That's what you see. A magnetic joy, a contagious transformation. As these people are completely changed with new identity, new priorities, and a complete release on life. Other people are watching this. They're watching this community gather and love on each other and take care of one another's needs and thrill at gathering to worship Jesus and responding in awe. Like, God, you are truly amazing. As people watch this magnetic joy, it's not surprising that in the end of this text, what do you see? Day by day, the Lord added to their number. People are going, what's going on over there? What's going on amongst these people? This is amazing. Really, random people saved out of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different social statuses, and they're all coming together into one family and they're sharing stuff and they're loving it. What's going on there? And they have an opportunity then to go, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one who's changed my life. That's what happens. It's a magnetic joy. It's a contagious transformation. My friends, what you're hearing is how the gospel gets from Jerusalem to Lincoln. This is how. It's when the gospel is cultivated in a community, and that community expands 
and God adds to their number where they are, and then they spread. That's what happens, my friends. Isn't this great? That's what happens. And so we pray that God will continue to cultivate his gospel here and through us into other parts of Lincoln and through us together to the ends of the earth. This is God's program. Amen? God's program. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your great grace. You are so good. You are worthy of praise. Father, I pray you would help us to orient our identity around you. I pray that you would help us to prioritize the rhythms of grace. And I pray that you would release us from our tight grip on our stuff and even our time so that we might be about your mission. God, this life is about you. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.